0: Nuclear Arctic. While most attention paid to the Arctic these days tends to focus on climate change and glacial collapse and methane levels and the like, the rising radiation risks to the Arctic have not been considered by groups that focus on the rapidly evolving changes to the Earth's biosphere. But nuclear issues, accidents, and exposures have already had a deep impact on radiation levels in the Arctic water, ice, and the food eaten by indigenous cultures of the far north. How bad is it? Mainstream media doesn't like to fill us in on the ugly bits, so it takes a brave researcher, an expert in marine biology, to spell out just one of the massive dangers should there be a nuclear accident in the Arctic, and he tells us,
1: In the context of the massive weaknesses and failures of response we have seen with Chernobyl, Fukushima and other nuclear disasters situated close to relatively good communication and transport routes and a reservoir of technical expertise, it seems to me that an Arctic Ocean nuclear disaster occurring at enormous distances from such facilities is likely to progress faster and further than Chernobyl or Fukushima.
0: Well. When you hear such a dire yet logical assumption from someone who has dedicated his life to the study of nuclear radiation risks in the oceans, marine radiation researcher and consultant Tim Deere Jones, and he tells you such a common sense but completely overlooked problem with introducing still more nuclear technology into the Arctic, you get yet another view of that dangerous, deadly seat that we all share on the radioactive contamination of the Arctic, especially important in light of the rapid melt of glacial ice and its impact on climate change. We'll hear from marine biologist Tim Deere-Jones, who provides a thorough report on a range of problems in the Arctic, and this is exclusively done for Nuclear Hot Seat. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, Linda Pence-Gunter with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness and More Honest Nuclear Information then has already announced that it is running for office in 2024. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November 15, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out in Sharm el Sheikh, Egypt, where the United Nations' 27th Climate Change Conference of the Parties, or COP27, continues to take place, despite the fact that conversation has been taken over by hordes of nuclear industry and fossil fuel lobbyists, including the UN's International Atomic Energy Agency, which for the first time opened an exhibit which touted nuclear as, in the words of the Director General Rafael Mariano Grossi, When you talk about nuclear, you're talking about a confirmed energy producer, which is not part of the problem, but rather part of the solution. This from a man who repeatedly freaked out over the dangers of Russian shelling at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant site in Ukraine. For a concise rundown on COP27, here's Beyond Nuclear's Linda Pence-Gunter with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. It's pretty
2: hard to feel optimistic about anything useful coming out of the COP27 climate summit currently happening in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, when you read statements like these. We have a viable alternative in nuclear. We don't get to net zero by 2050 without nuclear power in the mix. That was US Special Climate Envoy John Kerry speaking. He actually used the occasion of the climate summit first to hold a press conference to brag about a new U.S. small modular reactor deal with Romania, and then to announce a similar joint SMR deal with, of all places, Ukraine. In the latter announcement, they used the word clean four times in a single paragraph. No further comment needed. When you have a climate envoy, special or otherwise, who deliberately chooses to ignore the entire body of empirical data that show just how thoroughly nuclear power will sabotage progress on climate, it's pretty easy to despair. In the space of a week, U.S. officials have now announced three nuclear power deals with Eastern European countries. Not a good trend. Last week, as we reported here, it was the three-reactor Westinghouse deal with Poland, brokered in part by U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris and U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. Meanwhile, the atomic lobby has a full-court press going on at COP27. No dancing bananas this year, but the media, true to form, consistently laps up the lies about small modular reactors being inherently safe and nuclear power being renewable and on and on. The nuclear lobby isn't alone. According to the Washington Post and other outlets, the COP is awash in fossil fuel representatives. Awash, that's the word the Post reporter used while noting that it's even an increase over the industry's massive presence at the COP26 last year in Scotland. You might wonder how these people, intent on our collective extinction, sleep at night. I do. Is near-term greed really worth the obliteration of life on Earth as we know it? All these people, the fossil fuel lobby, the nuclear evangelists, should be at The Hague, charged with crimes against humanity. Among the nuclear lobbyists in Egypt are, of course, representatives of the International Atomic Energy Agency. First, they wring their hands about the extreme risks around Ukraine's Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. And then IAEA chief Rafael Grossi says this about the Zaporizhia peril. The big problem is war, not nuclear energy. That's like the gun lobby claiming it's bad guys, not guns that do the killing. Sorry, no, bad guys without guns can't shoot people. Broken solar panels and fallen wind turbines can't release massive amounts of radioactivity. It's nuclear energy, stupid, period. The COP summits should be giving center stage to the youth climate activists and the peace and anti-nuclear movements, not to the vested interests of nuclear power and fossil fuels because it's with the former that our only hope for survival rests. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's
0: this week's hot story. The COP27 nuclear boneheadedness runs from the top, as Linda just reported, down to how low can you go? Nuclear Hot Seat,
2: Nuclear Hot Seat, Nuclear Hot Seat,
0: none that's out of week. When it comes to COP27, numbnuts, nothing can beat the pro-nuclear fitness freestyle rap dance. Check out the latest in nuclear industry condescension towards young people. And don't miss out on that hippity-hoppity polar bear. Tim Deer Jones will have a lot to say about that in this week's featured report. And that's why whatever condescending nuke brain was behind this, you are this week's Nuclear hot seat, none that's out of the week. Internationally, U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping have reiterated their agreement that a nuclear war, quote, should never be fought. However, Chris Buckley, New York Times reporter, reports that unlike the White House's account, the Chinese account did not mention Xi and Biden agreeing on opposing Russia's threat of using nuclear weapons in the Ukraine war. So does that mean China's view is that nuclear war should never be fought unless the weapons are coming from Russia? At the exact same time, in Australia, the U.S. Embassy warned Australian officials that the labor government's decision to adopt an abstain position regarding the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, after five years of opposing it, would obstruct Australia's reliance on American nuclear forces in case of a nuclear attack on the country. So on the one hand, nuclear war should never be fought. And on the other, if it is fought, you can't trust us to join the war with our nukes, because you said you opposed them. This makes no sense. In Germany, a strong speech by the German Minister for Nuclear Safety to Parliament stated, Germany has decided to exit from nuclear energy for very good reasons. Nuclear energy is and remains dangerous. The consequences of an accident or attack would be unbelievably devastating. In 2022, nuclear power plants were targets in a war for the first time. We have to end it. German firm Uniper will also not be building a nuclear plant in Sweden. The company will be wholly owned by the German state as of January 1, 2023. So this previously announced new build is, quote, Not in the cards. More bad nuclear news for Sweden, as their largest nuclear reactor, Oskarsham 3, located 140 miles south of Stockholm, has been discontinued from the national grid after a fault with one of its turbines. This marks the third time in 2022 that Oskarsham's operation has been stopped. In Greenland, ice sheets are melting much faster than previously thought, suggesting it will add six times more water to rising sea levels than shown by previous estimates, and scientists worry that the trend may not be limited to Greenland. We will have more about the nuclear aspect of Arctic ice melt in today's featured interview. In Japan, TEPCO's repayment of more than 10 trillion yen, 68 billion American dollars, of government funding for cleanup and compensation for the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant disaster has been delayed. Funding for the first 11 years of the disaster has already amounted to nearly half of TEPCO's total estimated cost of 150 billion US dollars for the multi decades long process. Japan's industry ministry is looking to finalize nuclear reactor service extension to 80 years by the end of this year in part by subtracting the time that nuclear plants are not operational during safety checks and refueling from the total service period. And we will link to an article from The Guardian in the UK entitled, To Those Who Sneer at Activists Blocking Roads, What Are You Doing to Save the Planet? We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, I've got a question for you. Do you appreciate learning the nuclear news on Nuclear Hot Seat? We do everything to make it palatable while sticking to verifiable facts. Yes, there's humor, puns, literary allusions, funny voices. Hey, I have got no shame in using my showbiz background to do what needs to be done to put this important message across. But that's just the window dressing. The core of Nuclear Hot Seat is the honest information, hardcore interviews, and shoutouts to activists and activities opposing nuclear around the world. Where else would you get all this in one handy-dandy, easy-to-swallow weekly package? So, as they say in baseball, that was the windup. here's the pitch. This show runs on donations. And right now, we are not bringing in enough to cover our expenses. Without your support, and yes, I'm talking to you, we wouldn't be able to continue. And trust me, You would not be getting this much nuclear information from the New York Times or any other mainstream media outlet. So this is important. Listen up. You can help keep Nuclear Hot Seat up and running by making a donation of any size. We make it easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com. There's a red Donate button there that you can click on to make a one-time donation of any size. Or... You can sustain us while sticking to your budget and set up a recurring donation of as little as $5 in a month. Here in the U.S., that's the price of a cup of coffee and a nice tip to the barista. Isn't Nuclear Hot Seat worth the equivalent of a cup of coffee? So help us out by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and clicking on that red button, then following the prompts. Know that whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. Tim Deere-Jones is a marine biologist, a researcher and consultant, who specializes in analysis of the radiation threats to our planet's waters from a wide range of nuclear sources. We've had him on the show often, and he's always been thorough, articulate, and given us plenty to think about. When I asked him to speak on radiation problems in the Arctic, He let me know that there was so much information to unpack, we would all best be served if he put together a presentation rather than use this show's usual interview format. So that's what he's done, and that's what we're doing. We will also have a copy of this presentation available as a downloadable PDF on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 595. This is a special encore presentation, in honor of COP27 and all that isn't being discussed there. Here, I spoke with Tim Dear jones on Monday, January 24, 2022.
1: Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, everybody. My name is Tim Dear jones and I am a marine radioactivity researcher and consultant, and I'm very grateful to my dear friend, Levy, to, for allowing me To take up so much of her time by introducing you to my story about the nuclearization of the Arctic Ocean which has been going on since the 1930s most surprisingly because it was during the 1930s that the Soviet Union began the construction of over a thousand planned nuclear lighthouses along its Arctic coasts in order to assist navigation through the difficult waters of the Arctic Northern Sea Route which goes from Europe to the Pacific. These nuclear lighthouses were powered by radioisotopic thermoelectric generators, happily called RTGs, which utilized radioactive strontium-90 as a heat source to power thermoelectric batteries which drove the lights on the lighthouses. So, the construction and the maintenance of these RTG lighthouses ceased with the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s. And it is reported that many of them had already fallen into major despair by then, and that some of them have now been completely destroyed by weather and ice conditions, while other RTGs have been removed and broken for scrap material by thieves. unfortunately, the number of these lost RTGs has not been quantified. More recently, international teams have been permitted to attempt removal and decommissioning of the aged RTGs, and during their work, they have uncovered strong evidence that many of those strontium-90 sources had leaked radioactivity into the surrounding terrestrial and marine environments. However, Despite these old fashioned ones uh, having been lost and broken with the continuing development of the Northern sea route, the Russian Federation has recently announced that it is planning to install a new generation of RTGs at remote Arctic military and industrial sites. There are indications that some of these may be deployed on the Arctic seabed, as well as at coastal terrestrial sites. Prior, to the 1963 test ban treaty which prohibited all tests to donations of nuclear weapons except for those conducted underground arctic indigenous communities had been in receipt of exposures of fallout radioactivity and were considered to be some of the most exposed populations to global fallout from atmospheric testing from 1945 through to 63. Now the records show that the U.S. carried out over a thousand such tests in the Northern Hemisphere, but none directly in the Arctic. However, after 1965 and through to 71, the U.S. did carry out a series of three underground tests at Amchitka in the Aleutian Island chain close to the Arctic Circle and situated between the Bering Sea to the north and the east, and the Pacific Ocean to the south and the west. The final Amchitka test, named Kanakin, was a really big five megaton blast, which not only created an earthquake of Richter scale 7 and 15-foot ground waves, It is also reported that cliffs collapsed into the sea, and that the sea boiled, and thousands of seabirds, sea otters, and other animals were killed. Amchitka is still the subject of regular radiological monitoring, and the marine and terrestrial environments are still considered radioactive as a result of these tests. Meanwhile, Soviet Union tests were being performed between 1949 and 1990, and during that period, over 715 tests were carried out. Many of these took place at the northern test site on the Arctic island of Novaya Zemlaya. Details of the Soviet tests are more obscure than the US data, but it is likely that some were of similar magnitude to the Kanakin test. No matter where they were carried out, much of the airborne radioactivity from these northern hemisphere tests, even though several thousand kilometers distant from the Arctic, were driven by wind and precipitation patterns to eventually fall out over the Arctic, contaminating land, water, and the ground level atmosphere. Analysis of both sea ice and glacial and ice cap cores has proved the presence of a range of weapons test radio new, including cesium-137, strontium-90. Regrettably, there has been poor quantification of the amount of weapons test fallout that has deposited on Arctic environments. But academic research has shown that the diet and traditions of indigenous groups mean that they have been and still are receiving very significant contact dietary and inhalation doses of weapons test fallout derived from hunted fish sea mammals and terrestrial meat gathered vegetable and other wild produce and the inhalation of contaminated air and marine aerosols and sea sprays In the context of climate change, it is quite clear that the major ice loss melt trend currently affecting the Arctic is going to make a significant contribution to marine radioactivity concentrations as the reservoir of radioactive fallout locked in the ice is released to the sea. So far, I have not been able to find any evidence that this factor has been or can be quantified. Contemporary with the rising number of nuclear weapons tests through the 50s and the 60s, there was a massive increase in radioactivity discharges from the operation of a new breed of civilian nuclear power stations and reprocessor sites, including Sellafield and Kapta La Hague in Europe. These were built to extract weapons-grade plutonium from power station-used irradiated fuel. These establishments discharge nuclear waste materials to both the atmosphere in gaseous and particulate form through chimneys and stacks and to sea in liquid and particulate form through sea discharge pipelines. And as we have seen, such atmospheric fallout and washout onto the Arctic seems to be impossible to quantify. Sadly, it seems to be the case that the impact of distant marine discharges on the Arctic is also hard to accurately quantify. It was assumed by the nuclear industry that such materials would either dilute and disperse, and hence all but vanish in the marine environment, or become sequestered in marine seabed sediments, and thus be locked away from contact with humans and the environment. However, some years after the first discharge to sea of radioactive effluents from Sellafield, it was blandly announced by the British authorities that the discharges had been experimental and that much useful information had been gathered. Amongst that information was the fact that much of the radioactivity discharged to sea did not dilute and disperse to nothing or become locked away forever in marine sediments in fact field research by both nuclear industry and independent academics has now proved that the Sellafield reprocessors c-derived alpha emitting plutonium beta and gamma emitting cesium and other radionuclides have penetrated the arctic ocean and contaminated the marine environment and food webs and delivered dietary doses of multiple nucleides to apex consumers including human populations cellarfield discharges are easily identified because they have a specific fingerprint ratio of radionuclides other atlantic and pacific nuclear power station discharges are less easily identified but must clearly follow the same distribution patterns of the reprocessor discharges researchers now Confidently confirmed that Sellafield-derived marine radioactivity has entered the Pacific from the Arctic after having entered the Arctic from the Atlantic. In connection with all of this, Russia has embarked on a major exploitation of mineral reserves as the Arctic marine environment warms and the opportunities for safe and ice-free maritime transport increase. A number of major industrial sites are under development along the Arctic coast of Russia with new ports, industrial infrastructure and supporting areas under construction to exploit very large reserves of metal ores such as gold, nickel, copper, uranium, rare earths and oil and gas reserves. The use of nuclear energy to power these developments is rapidly becoming the preferred choice in the Russian Federation. Government policy appears to be strongly supportive of the use of a variety of small modular nuclear reactor design types in the Arctic. There is a similarly flexible attitude to deployment methods with plans to deploy small modular nuclear reactors at offshore oil and gas rig complexes either on the seabed or as floating units in addition to those moored at the coast a floating small modular nuclear reactor power station is already in operation on the siberian coast having been constructed and fueled in western europe and then towed to pevek on the coast of chukotka in the East Siberian Sea, not that far away from the US and Canadian jurisdiction. Pevek is the site of a newly opened copper and gold extraction and refining development. And the Alexander Lomonosov is an unpropelled vessel which carries two uranium-fueled nuclear reactors developed from Russian nuclear sub-propulsion units. The reactors will require on-site refueling every three years and a refit overhaul every 12 years. The Lomonosov has been operating at Pevek since 2019. Four more such units are currently under construction and destined for similar resource extraction sites along the Siberian coast. Clearly, Russia's current policy increases the risk of nuclear accident in the Arctic. The obvious risks to the integrity of such units deployed in extreme Arctic conditions are exacerbated by the extreme distance from technical backup and expertise in the event of a nuclear incident additionally the expectation that the reactors will be refueled on site clearly indicates that arctic ocean maritime transports of both new fuel elements and used irradiated nuclear fuels is going to increase exponentially as more of the planned small nuclear reactors come on stream so there's also an issue in the arctic with nuclear civilian shipping there were originally four nuclear cargo ships built by each of the early nuclear nations, France, Russia, America, and Germany. There is also an issue with the amount of nuclear civilian shipping in the Arctic. There were originally four nuclear freighters built by nuclear nations in the early 70s and 80s. Only one of them remains, and that is the Soviet-built nuclear-powered freighter Sev-Mor-Put, which was launched in 1988. This vessel has recently been relatively inactive, largely due to the refusal of many coastal states and even some Russian ports to accept a visit from a nuclear powered vessel in the context of fears about nuclear accidents, reactor accidents and uncertain insurance regimes covering maritime nuclear reactors. In the late 1990s, the the Russian Sevma port was laid up in Murmansk due to delays in the refueling of her reactors. The refueling finally took place in 2001 and later the ship resumed low level services on Arctic routes. In August 2007, it was reported that the ship would be converted into the world's first nuclear-powered drilling ship working the Arctic oil fields. But due to lack of demand for cargo operators and the need of specialised drilling vessels in the Russian Arctic, that conversion never took place. In October 2009, the General Director of Atomflot announced that Sevmorput could remain in service for 15 years, But in October 2012, it was reported that she would be removed from the Russian ship register in July and would be sold for scrap. However, in the following December, it was reported that the decision to decommission this ship had been cancelled and that the vessel would be brought back to service by February 2016. So the Sevma port became active again and has subsequently been chartered mainly by the Russian Ministry of Defense for transporting cargo related to the development of military infrastructure in the Arctic. And in addition, she has occasionally transported supplies for oil and gas projects. Her new life has been punctuated by breakdowns and delayed operations, none of which have so far been attributed to reactor problems. So this redeployment of this now very old nuclear powered freighter appears to be to part of the ongoing nuclearization of Russia's Arctic shipping and follows recent statements that Russia is considering alternative fuels, in inverted commas, for its civilian polar fleets, having already built and operated 10 nuclear-powered icebreakers, with five more in the design and building stage, and the one floating marine nuclear reactor referred to earlier, and there's nine more of them in design and build stage as well, all of which are going to be used to keep the ice clear from the northern sea route and to power offshore Arctic Ocean oil drilling, mineral mining, and the associated refining, manufacturing, and urban industrial activity. Just as a side mention, China has also begun the construction of nuclear-powered icebreakers with certainly one, and possibly two, such vessels powered by twin maritime PWRs under design and construction. The design and construction brief for the Chinese vessels states that they are intended to open polar waterways, presumably intended to accompany future Chinese merchant vessels along the Arctic Northern Sea Route. So it's not only the development of these transport modes, which is causing questions and problems there in the Arctic, a series of nuclear accidents have made detectable impacts on the Arctic's aquatic and terrestrial ecosystems. Research projects have concluded that Chernobyl accident radioactivity entered the Arctic environments by way of multiple pathways, including direct fallout and washout onto Arctic environments, Inputs of radioactivity from the river basin systems of Arctic and sub-Arctic terrestrial environments contaminated by fallout and washout. And as is the case with other import sources, this has not been quantified across the Arctic, either in terms of the quantity of radioactivity or the number of radionuclides which have cropped up. Research has recently reported that radioactivity released to sea during and after the Fukushima disaster has entered the Arctic Ocean and has been detected in the Bering Sea, which lies between the Pacific and the Arctic proper, and the Chukchi Sea, which is actually a subdivision of the proper Arctic Ocean. In the context of the fate and behavioural weapons test fallout discussed earlier, it seems inevitable that other northern hemisphere nuclear accidents dating back to the 1957 Sellafield reprocessor fire and the Soviet Union's Chelyabinsk-Mayak reprocessor accident in the same year will also have made significant contributions to Arctic environmental radioactivity. Going back to in-Arctic sources of nuclear contamination, there is no doubt that sunken nuclear subs and sea-dumped military nuclear wastes have made a significant impact on radioactivity levels in the sum of the Arctic marine environments. There is a wide consensus that the major issue is nuclear submarines. Reports from Russia confirm that the Soviet Union actually lost five nuclear submarines, and subsequently the Russian Federation lost two in the Barents and the Kara seas at the European end of the Arctic Ocean. All but one of these sinkings occurred as a result of some form of onboard failure. One was deliberately scuttled following an onboard nuclear event which made the vessel too radioactive to be worked on, One of the sunk ships was a diesel-powered submarine carrying nuclear missiles. The others were all nuclear-powered, and an uncertain number of them were carrying nuclear weapons. Now, it seems to be pretty certain six of the seven lost submarines were powered by twin nuclear reactors, each containing between 700 and 1,000 kilograms of nuclear fuel, depending on the vessel type. Some observers postulate that a significant leak breach of containment from any one of these vessels could raise radioactivity concentrations in the valuable Barents and Kara Sea fish stocks, cod, capelin, halibut and crab, by a hundred times in the years following any such leak. And because of the risk of such environmental impact from any one of these vessels, European money has been granted to Russia in order to help raise these sunken submarines and decommission them and now emerges that a suitable vessel has now entered the design stage and is likely with any luck to be commissioned in 2026 so that those submarines can be lifted by 2032 and taken landside for proper and correct decontamination and breaking. Russian sources also confirm that at one stage there were over 100 disused nuclear submarines in wet dock storage, complete with their reactors, and that although most of them have now been decommissioned and scrapped, some still remain. In addition, there is a growing fleet of retired nuclear-powered icebreakers, complete with their reactors, also moored around the Arctic coastlines and waiting decommissioning and breaking. All told, it is reported that around 17,000 containers of hazardous nuclear waste, 19 retired nuclear support vessels, tugs, barges, floating docks, pontoons, and waste carriers, and 735 items of irradiated heavy machinery have also been sea dumped into the Barents and Kara Seas, again at the European end of the Arctic Ocean. While international nuclear expertise insists that nuclear waste should have been dumped into ocean deeps far offshore, and at least three kilometres deep, some of the material discussed here has been dumped on seabeds around 50 metres deep, clearly pretty close to land. Russia is not alone in its military radioactive pollution of the Arctic because the U.S. has also made its own notable contribution focused on Northern Greenland. In 1959, the U.S. opened a Cold War nuclear missile site called Camp Century, which was buried beneath the ice cap in Northern Greenland, about 150 miles from the U.S. airbase at Fuel. Three kilometers of tunnel were constructed beneath many feet of ice, with accommodation for around 200 military personnel and the site was powered by an experimental PM2 portable nuclear reactor. project ran until 1967 when it was abandoned due to the instability of the covering ice, and the reactor was dismantled and removed. However, in the expectation that polar conditions would continue as normal, and that the base would become more and more snowed under and sealed, many tons of waste were abandoned on site, including thousands of gallons of sewage, diesel fuel, PCBs and 47,000 gallons of liquid nuclear waste. Given that the PM2 reactor was water-cooled and uranium-fueled, it is inevitable that this liquid waste will contain alpha-emitting uranium and plutonium nuclides, tritium and a cocktail of other activation products. It is now widely agreed that due to climate change driven ice melt, the site infrastructure is likely to be exposed by the end of this century. The potential radiological impact to runoff watercourses and the receiving environment of Greenland's coastal waters is clearly a radiological threat awaiting the region. Regional marine food webs are unlikely to avoid bioabsorption and accumulation of some of that radioactivity. This issue was compounded when in 1968, a US B-22 bomber crashed and exploded on sea ice off the North Greenland coast. The explosion ruptured the nuclear payload consisting of four thermonuclear devices and scattered debris and nuclear material across a wide area of sea ice. Although Danish and US authorities undertook a cleanup and attempted to collect and remove all the debris, it is clear that not all of the debris and contamination could have been removed as the secondary stage of one bomb containing uranium-238, plutonium and tritium has never been recovered. On the basis of short-term research, it has been concluded by the authorities that most of the plutonium, variously estimated to be between 7.5 and 24 kilograms in mass is currently sequestered in seabed sediments and not available to most biota or human populations. However, as is the case with the Camp Century Pollution, in the context of climate change and the increasing severity of marine and meteorological conditions, intensity of storminess, wave height and the possibility of major changes in regional marine currents, this sequestered isolation of the bomb material must not be expected to last. One of the problems with working in Greenland is that like all other Arctic sites, it's relatively isolated and not particularly easy waters to work in. And the radiological inventories of these accident events remains very poorly qualified, as do the long-term environmental marine food web and human impacts. So, having looked at all this stuff, there's a natural concern to try and identify what might be the doses to human populations as a result of this very heavy nuclearization of the Arctic Ocean. And unfortunately, there's virtually nothing there. What we have is that during and after the construction of the Test Ban Treaty, it was agreed that Arctic residents. Whose diets comprised a large proportion of traditional hunted gathered foodstuffs had received the highest radiation exposures to weapons test radionuclides. And there was a pretty wide agreement that though most exposed population groups in the Arctic may have on average received up to 50 times higher individual doses than members of the average population and using arctic specific information the predicted collective population dose is five times higher than that estimated for more temperate areas such as northern europe or the bulk of the states and most of southern canada where the source of dose is reasonably well understood calculations have shown that significant doses can be delivered to arctic populations thus individual annual doses to the most exposed residents of the Arctic from Chernobyl fallout have been calculated for reindeer herding and hunting gathering communities at approximately 10 to 20 microsieverts in the most affected area. So that's about as high as the Japanese lifted the limits for populations in and around Fukushima after the Fukushima incident. So you can appreciate that's pretty high. And these are people living thousands of miles away from the Chernobyl source. By contrast to that 10 to 20 microsieverts, releases arriving in the Arctic from the Sellafield reprocessing plant in the UK provide a small contribution, i.e. in the range of maybe 0.05 microsieverts. It has been estimated that doses to humans from the reactors of sunken nuclear submarines Are currently very low indeed and this has been attributed to the fact that so far reactor shielding has not broken down for which we must surely all be very grateful. However the Chernobyl related data quoted above gives you a powerful indication of the kind of impacts that we might be seeing if we had an in-arctic reactor or nuclear warhead release. Regrettably though as I've indicated earlier Due to difficult working conditions and the remoteness of much of the Arctic, serious estimates of aggregated total radioactivity locked in seabed and intertidal sediments and in the Arctic water mass or in the remaining Arctic ice are pretty much non-existent. The few studies that have been undertaken have been widely spread across a large sea area and present very variable outcomes. The majority of the research has focused on the sunken Russian and Soviet nuclear submarines in the Barents and the Kara Sea, and on the Russian Soviet test site, nuclear test site at Novaya Zemlaya in the Kara Sea. But elsewhere, research has been very thinly spread, and this militates against any comprehensive Arctic wide environmental or population estimates. For the same reason, both individual and population dose estimates are similarly incomplete and incoherent and are additionally inadequate because the prohibitive expense of analyzing samples for all of the radioactivity likely to be present means that research tends to focus on a very limited number of radionuclides, sometimes only one, and thus returns thoroughly unrepresentative data. Dose estimates from marine environments are also based on the outdated assumption that marine radioactivity dose can only be acquired via a limited number of pathways, three in fact, seafood consumption, skin contact with marine materials and accidental ingestion of marine materials such as beach sand or seawater. Such assumptions have been clearly disproved by recent independent academic investigation, which now recognizes nine such pathways of exposure to marine radioactivity. So the big problem with the Arctic is that there are indeed many potential sources of radiological threats. Russia has an ever-growing fleet of nuclear submarines. Their Arctic Northern Fleet has about 20 nuclear submarines, some capable of carrying 120 nuclear weapons and missiles each, such that it is believed that as many as a thousand nuclear warheads could be deployed in the Arctic by the Russian fleet. If you add into that the fact that the US is also putting its own nuclear submarines and other vessels into the Arctic in order to watch and harass the operations of the Russian fleet. You can see that that's an even bigger threat. So in addition to the submarine issue, Russia has 10 nuclear-powered twin reactor icebreakers. Some decommissioned, but more being built. The nuclear-powered freighter port has two reactors and the floating nuclear power station referred to earlier also has two reactors. So there are currently at least 44 maritime reactors deployed in the Arctic. So we've got a thousand nuclear missiles, a thousand nuclear warheads, 44 maritime reactors deployed in the Arctic. And in addition, there are an unknown but clearly growing number of shipments of maritime civilian nuclear cargo. So that's supply ships to nuclear floating reactors and military nuclear bases, taking material, nuclear material into those bases and bringing used material out. And then we've got the military sites and the test sites. We've got the historical legacy from atmospheric and weapons tests and accidents. And the u.s inputs from camp century and lost bombs and russian marine dumps of nuclear waste material and lost nuclear subs we've got the issue of ice and permafrost melt which is as we speak releasing radioactive fallout and washout from ice melt into the ocean Increasing rainfall on the river systems and river basins is going to flush terrestrial radioactivity from those areas into the ocean. So it's important to remember that as of yet there is no method for the radiological decontamination of environments, biota or humans, and that flushing by applying copious amount of water is the only system of decontaminating radioactive material such as those we've been looking at. And all that flushing is inevitably going to end up in your ocean anyway. So biota, including humans, can flush a certain amount of radioactivity by excreting it from their systems. But since many radionucleides preferentially attach to bone, teeth, organs or blood such processes do not remove all of the radioactivity and indeed create the ideal scenario for long-term internal exposure of humans and animals such excretory processes are of minimal benefit to those living a traditional life which ensures that they must consume a local diet gained from a long-term radiologically polluted environment and i'll just remind you again that due to the difficult working conditions and the remoteness of much of the Arctic response to Arctic nuclear releases is going to be severely restricted due to ambient conditions of seasonality, meteorology, sea and ice state and time constraints imposed by the enormous distance that many of these nuclear installations are set at, as opposed to the base of nuclear expertise back home in mother Russia and mother US. So in conclusion, it's my thoughts that the significant nuclear accidents in the Arctic are pretty much inevitable with accompanying major releases to atmosphere and aquatic environments of multiple radionuclides. In the context of the massive weaknesses and failures of response we have seen with Chernobyl, Fukushima and other nuclear disasters situated close to relatively good communication and transport routes and a reservoir of technical expertise it seems to me that an arctic ocean nuclear disaster occurring at enormous distances from such facilities is likely to progress faster and further than chernobyl or fukushima the arctic ocean with an area of only about 6.1 million square miles is far and away the world's smallest ocean Yet it has possibly the longest history of imported nuclear pollution and the in-ocean deployment of multiple uses of nuclear power. Under the current conditions, it can, without doubt, be defined as the most nuclear ocean, with more marine nuclear activity compressed into a smaller area than any other ocean. All the signs are that the future can only see the process become more accelerated and the nuclearization and attendant radiological risks become more intense. In the context that the Arctic has numerous sources of its own man-made radiological inputs, and that it is clearly also a conduit for the inter-ocean distribution of other Northern Hemisphere marine radioactivity from the Atlantic to the Arctic to the Pacific, it is clear that Northern Hemisphere coastal maritime nations cannot escape the potential problems arising from the nuclearization of the Arctic Ocean. So I believe it is imperative that Arctic and other governments address this issue with alacrity and set in motion a series of international Arctic-wide agreements to limit the nuclearization process, set in place memorandums of understanding for the management and response to and mitigation of any radiological incident, and consider the radiological implications for the arctic marine environment and for both the traditional indigenous arctic peoples and those many thousands of immigrant workers now living in the new resource extraction industries and their associated developments along the arctic coasts of the arctic ocean this is tim dear jones marine radioactivity research and consultant thank you very much for listening
0: and thank you very much for providing that, Tim. UK-based marine biologist, researcher, and consultant, Tim Deer-Jones. Tim has provided a PDF of this exclusive presentation, and we have it available to you through our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 595.
1: Activists, 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 shout out, shout out, shout out. Shout out.
0: We are in countdown mode for the world premiere of Heidi Huttner's new film, Radioactive, The Women of Three Mile Island. It's a feature documentary about the 1997 Three Mile Island meltdown, the worst commercial nuclear accident in U.S. history. Radioactive covers the never-before-told stories of four intrepid homemakers turned activists, two women lawyers who took the local community's case all the way to the Supreme Court, and a young female journalist who's caught in the radioactive crossfire. No, not me, somebody else. Radioactive is going to premiere on Sunday, December 24, at 3.30 p.m. at the Regal Theater Union Square in Manhattan at the Dances with Films Festival. Check out their website and be sure to buy your tickets in advance because this is going to sell out. This week, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists released its November 2021 issue which includes an article by Bob Alvarez and Joe Mangano about nuclear weapons testing and their efforts to better understand the health hazards of test fallout using 100,000 baby teeth collected in the 1960s. We also have an upcoming interview with Joe Mangano on this very topic, and it should be up within the next two weeks. You can check out their article by going to thebulletin.org. And Bob Alvarez, a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, as well as one of the bedrock founders of the national movement to unmask the human and environmental carnage that resulted directly from the U.S. production of a massive nuclear arsenal, has now written about Karen Silkwood in a very moving post. He commemorates her murder, which happened on November 13, 1974, when she was on her way to meet with a New York Times reporter and an official of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union with whistleblowing evidence against Kerr McGee, which owned and operated the plutonium fuel fabrication plant in Cimarron, Oklahoma, where Karen was a technician and a union activist. Bob's late wife, Kitty Tucker, along with Sarah Nelson, waged an international campaign and put together a successful lawsuit on behalf of Karen Silkwood's family that prevailed in the Supreme Court in 1984. It's always good to know our history, and we will link to that on the website. And Nuclear Hot Seat's 600th episode is coming up in late December, just in time for Christmas. I would like to put together some favorite clips from the show, and for that, I need your help. If you have a favorite moment, story, anecdote, little bit of fluff we did, revelation, musical theater moment, or whatever, let me know. Send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com, include the episode number, date, and what you thought was memorable. And if you really want to help, be an angel and include what time in the recording this exchange happens. I will do my best to accommodate you in whatever results. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 15, 2022 material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, dunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Ed Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists, Dr. Paul Dorfman, mainichi.jp, abcnews.go, Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, Bob Alvarez, TheGuardian.com, State.gov, Reuters.com, Christine Leger, CDLlife.com, sheerpost.com, Telegraph.co.uk, HeraldScotland.com, Eurective.com, DailyMail.co.uk, space.com, Bloomberg.com, ClimateCrox.com, and the Captured and Compromised by the Industry They are supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks to Linda Pence Gunter as always, for her weekly Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. Now, you can get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week. It's easy. We don't deluge you with other emails. Just one a week, you can sign up at nuclearhotseat.com, look for the yellow box, put in your first name and email address, and ta-da! Every week, you will get an email with a link to the show and a short description of the contents. That way, you never have to miss a single episode of the show. Or just sign up on your favorite podcast platform. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really appreciate your help. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022. Libby Halevi and Hardest Street Communications. All rights reserved, but hey, you can use it. Just give us credit. This is Libby Halevy, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that every nuclear reactor creates deadly radioactive waste that lasts forever, so for any new deal to be genuinely green, it must not include nuclear. That's it, your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep, because we are all in the Nuclear Hot Seat.